Due to the graphic nature of events at this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of executions, suicide, and infant mortality. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The most haunted house in America might not be the best place to bring my two-year-old daughter, but hey, she probably won't remember any of this, right? Toward the middle of the tour, the little one starts crying. I discreetly show myself into the next room over, the dining room. I try to calm her, but she frantically tries to push away. She wiggles out of my grasp and onto the floor. At least she stopped crying. She's always been a curious little thing, so I let her explore while I check my phone. The tour goes off into another room. I go back to my phone. A friend's post featuring her young daughter snaps me back to reality. I haven't heard a peep from the little one since she wiggled out of my arms. I briefly panic, cursing myself for letting my eyes wander. And then I hear her laughing and my heart relaxes. I glance over to see what she's found and I'm perplexed. She seems to be heading the air in front of her. Peculiar. Quite the imagination, I guess. Suddenly, my husband appears, panting in the doorway. He's carrying our little one in his arms. I found her trying to go up the stairs. Where have you been? He asks in a concerned tone. As I try to explain myself, I point over to the corner where I swore our child just was. But the corner is empty. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Whaley House in San Diego and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places as well as podcasts, other podcasts, on your favorite podcast directory. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com. Many of you have asked how you can support Haunted Places. If you enjoy the show, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We all know what the stereotypical haunted house looks like. A two-story mansion that was probably a real stunner in its day, but now sits abandoned, decrepit. It might be surrounded by a dense forest containing all kinds of strange nocturnal creatures. The windows are either boarded up or broken. It's outlined with a wrought iron fence that used to keep strangers out. The creaky gate swings back and forth in the wind. Typically, this is how we think of haunted houses. Run down with a thick layer of dust and spiderwebs covering every surface. So it's a little ironic that the home often proclaimed to be the most haunted in America doesn't match that description at all. 
When you approach the stately two-story home on San Diego Avenue, located in the Old Town District of San Diego, California, known as the Whaley House, you might first notice the bright white columns that line the porch. They seem like they were painted yesterday. The entrance to the house is open, inviting even. All the windows are intact and fitted with beautiful dark green shutters. The house itself is made of a gorgeous red brick. It looks just as it did not long after it was constructed in 1857. However, despite its decorated homely interior, the Whaley House is mired in dark and frightening rumors. Rumors that evil spirits have always plagued the family home. Rumors that frightened the local school children and caused some to visit just before nightfall in hopes of being scared. Rumors that those who were brave sometimes even knocked on the front door. Such curious children were often greeted by a disembodied voice who whispered through a crack, Hay espantos aquí con ojos grandes. There are ghosts here with big eyes. The voice belonged to none other than Anna Whaley, the woman of the house, who'd been dead for decades. Her ghost was only one of many, as the house was doomed to be haunted from the beginning. Thomas Whaley's life in San Diego began at the gallows. A crowd gathered around the platform, spectators of the execution. Two men stood on the platform, one with a roll of parchment, the other with an abnormally large pair of boots and his hands tied behind his back. The man holding the parchment announced to the crowd the name and the crimes of the man about to die, Yankee Jim Robinson, accused of grand larceny, attempted thieving of a boat from San Diego Harbor. Thomas could tell by Yankee Jim's demeanor that he was a hardened man. Thomas watched as the noose was tied around Yankee Jim's neck. The parchment man said a quick prayer, then kicked the stool Jim stood upon. The crowd cheered. Had they been listening, they would have noticed the distinct lack of a... Yankee Jim's neck hadn't snapped. Thomas saw Jim's eyes bulge and his legs kick. He struggled, but his hands were bound. A child in the crowd noticed the same. The child tugged on his father's coat, as if asking why isn't the man dead. A hush fell over the crowd. They watched as Yankee Jim kicked, his massive feet swinging wildly. Thomas knew it would take time. He'd been to an execution like this before. As the crowd petered out, Thomas was able to look at the land. The soil looked rich. The ground was level. The trees grew tall. This was the perfect location for a new home, and with it being an execution ground, he could probably get the land for cheap. Thomas climbed the gallows and approached the man with the parchment, who stood with his pocket watch in hand, timing Yankee Jim's last moments. Thomas asked him if the land was for sale. The parchment man was shocked. The city planners had wanted to develop the land for ages, but nobody wanted to build on the bones of criminals. Their spirits might not like it. Thomas enjoyed bargaining with superstitious fools. They were always easier to talk down on the price. He and the parchment man came to an agreement, 
and right as they shook hands, the area went silent. Thomas looked up to bulging red eyes staring down at him. Giant boots swung lifeless in the air. Forty-five minutes from the kick of the stool, Yankee Jim was dead, and the land belonged to Thomas Whaley. Five years passed as Thomas built his dream home on the gallows site, a beautiful two-story brick mansion, the likes of which San Diego had never seen before. Once construction was completed, Thomas, his wife Anna, and their new baby boy Francis moved in. The day was gorgeous. A breeze blew gently. The sunlight streamed elegantly through the windows. And Anna played a beautiful song on the piano. As the sun set on their first day home, the Whaley's put Francis in his crib and retired to their own quarters. Thomas's head hit the pillow and he shut his eyes. He drifted off to sleep, dreaming about his wonderful future in his wonderful home with his wonderful family. Thomas stirred and sat up in bed. There were steps just down the hall. At least he thought there were steps. They sounded heavy and hollow, almost sinister. Thomas jumped out of bed and rushed to the door. Nobody was there. He was sure he heard something, someone. He grabbed a candle and made his way through the house, room by room. Nothing. He shrugged. Perhaps he'd just been hearing things. He made his way back to his room. He closed the door and got in bed. Anna stirred in a half-awake daze and asked him where he'd gone. He told her he had gone to check on Francis and that everything was fine. She could go back to sleep. Anna dozed away and Thomas closed his eyes. As he lay drifting off to sleep, another noise popped into his mind. The creaks from the gallows. Then he knew. He knew the only thing that could make the odd sounds of those sinister footsteps were the giant boots of Yankee Jim. The huge boots marched through the night, and the sound of their stomping echoed through Thomas's mind. He couldn't rest. As the sun rose in the morning, Anna noticed Thomas looked quite bedraggled. She asked if he was okay, and he said he was fine. He always had trouble sleeping in a new home, he said. He didn't tell her about Yankee Jim and his giant boots. The thought of it made him feel like his mind was loosening. <laughs> Francis's laughter brought Thomas out of bed. He went and played with his son, the second day in his new home being as beautiful and lovely as the first. His wife played her music just as well as the day before. But when he drifted off to sleep that night, they were back. He was back. No, 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 it couldn't be him. Thomas had looked into his lifeless, bulging red eyes. The man was dead. Yankee Jim was dead. He whispered it to himself like a mantra. 
Thomas left his bedroom door open and climbed back into bed. As he dozed off, the footsteps woke him up again. And so it went. The sun came up and the sun went down. Every night, Thomas heard the clumping footsteps of great big boots moving outside his door. Anna asked why he was always so tired. Thomas couldn't tell her that he heard a ghost. Anna's question made it clear to Thomas that he was the only one who heard it. As time dragged on, the footsteps grew more frantic and louder, always louder and louder, as though they were embedded in the chambers of Thomas's mind. Sleep was a lost cause. All he could see were Yankee Jim's eyes. All he could hear were the boots stomping around his home. Thomas moved restlessly in the bed, and he heard Anna ask if she could play a song to calm his nerves. Thomas said, yes, please. The restless couple went into the parlor, and Thomas sat down in his chair. Anna told him to close his eyes while she sat down to play. He promised her he wouldn't open his eyes at all. His nerves settled. His muscles relaxed. As long as the piano played, he couldn't hear the footsteps. Anna shifted from song to song, elegantly lulling her husband to sleep. Thomas kept his eyes shut. Then, the pace of her playing suddenly shifted. It became livelier, frantic even. Something about the playing was wrong, almost completely wrong. But Thomas had promised. He couldn't stay still any longer. He opened his eyes to the most terrifying thing he'd ever seen. Anna hung suspended in the air, clutching at her throat. The piano keys were playing on their own. So intensely, it seemed they might jump out of their casing. Thomas leaped to his feet and grabbed Anna's legs. He pulled her as hard as he could, but to no avail. He watched as his wife's eyes turned red and began to bulge from their sockets. Yankee Jim, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please, please. Anna fell into Thomas's arms. As she caught her breath, they hugged each other, terrified. Anna and Thomas heard Yankee Jim walk away. Thomas could sleep and Anna could play her piano. But every once in a while, the footsteps would come back, and Anna's bulging eyes came rushing back into Thomas's mind. Before building his San Diego home in 1856, Thomas Whaley did not believe in ghosts. But shortly after moving in, Thomas claimed to hear the footsteps of Yankee Jim on a nightly basis. The rest of the Whaley family, for the next two generations, all claimed to have heard Yankee Jim at one point or another, some hearing his steps to this day, cementing the legend of Yankee Jim's ghost into the history of the Whaley House. We'll have more about the Whaley family and their encounters with the paranormal after this. Now, back to the story. 
1856, Thomas Whaley built his family's home on the grounds of San Diego's former gallows. The spirits of the site had come to haunt the house immediately after construction was completed. But it wouldn't be long before new ghosts began to settle in. Anna Whaley lay in bed, her body convulsing with labor pains. Thomas held her hand, and the midwife knelt at the foot of the bed. Breathe in, push. Breathe in, push. Anna had given birth before, but this time, in this house, something felt different. It felt like the house was waiting, like it was excited. Anna gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. The midwife placed the boy in her arms and she held him close. As she looked upon his red face and bawling eyes, she was filled with an overwhelming sense of dread. She already loved the boy, but something felt wrong. Something in the walls of the room. They named the child Thomas after his father. Thomas Jr. had a cheery disposition and his older brother Francis immediately took a liking to him. Francis loved playing with his brother. He would cover his face and vanish. Peekaboo, he'd reappear. Thomas Jr. and Francis laughed endlessly. Sometimes Thomas Sr. would join in the fun. Peekaboo, peekaboo. Anna watched them play. She saw her family's joy, but she couldn't bring herself to smile with them. Some days, when the weather was nice, Anna would take her sons for a stroll in the park. The sun was out, a breeze would blow, and she would look at Thomas Jr. and feel nothing but warmth. His smile and his eyes shone straight to her heart, and she'd hold him close. When the sun began to set, they'd head back home. She would feel grand about a day well spent until she turned the corner on the road and saw her house. The red bricks looked sinister upon the backlight of a falling sun. As she approached the building, Junior would grow quiet in her arms. She'd look down and see he was not asleep, only quiet. And in that silence, she could no longer picture a future for him. She talked to her husband about her worries for their son. She wanted to move, find a new house, escape from the bricks, those terrible bricks that whispered her son's name and seemed to pulsate with wicked desire. Thomas Sr. would hear nothing of the sort. The family had just built the house. Perhaps she could send Junior to be raised by her sister. Then he would be safe. Thomas Sr. thought that was foolish. Thomas Jr. would be raised by his own parents. That's the way it had to be. Anna felt trapped. Every time she looked at those bricks, they sent her into a frenzy. They pulsated and closed in on her, forcing her into a terrible claustrophobic fit. But she had no other option. Her son would be raised by his father and mother. She tried to ease her worry with logic. She didn't have any concrete reason to leave. 
Whatever sense of dread she felt was just a feeling, and feelings pass. Slowly, she started to believe her own rationalizations. Months went by, and Thomas Jr. grew. He scooted, then crawled, then stumbled, his first steps easing Anna's worry into the forgotten past. She began to smile, and when she brought Thomas Jr. home from the park, those red bricks looked less sinister. For the next year, she watched Junior closely. He seemed fine. The family was fine. Everything was fine. But one night, Anna was awoken from her slumber by Junior crying. She walked to his nursery and picked him up out of his crib. She cooed and hushed, trying to calm him down. But his tears didn't stop. She lit a lantern to get a better look at him. But she wished she hadn't. Thomas Jr.'s face was bright red and pocked with sores. His forehead burned to the touch. And Anna knew this was the end. She set her son down in his crib, sat in the corner, and began to cry. Thomas Sr. came rushing into the room, and upon seeing his son, he insisted that he fetch a doctor. Anna told him to save himself the effort. The boy had scarlet fever. The house had finally decided to claim him as its own. Thomas Sr. told Anna not to give up hope. He ran out the front door, saddled up his horse, and galloped into town in search of a doctor. But it was all in vain. As Anna cried, she watched Junior's kicking legs slow to a rigid lack of motion. She saw his mouth close, and his eyes lose their shine. She saw him die. But his crying didn't stop. Thomas Sr. returned with the doctor in tow. The two men rushed into the nursery, and the baby went silent. The doctor declared Junior dead. The Whaley's buried their son the next day, hoping to put him to rest. Thomas Sr. was racked with sorrow, and Anna was too. But she had always suspected this day would come. She left the wake early to keep from scaring the friends who were attending. As she approached her home alone, she heard something coming from the nursery window. The bricks around the window frame seemed to vibrate with the noise. Anna rushed inside and moved toward the nursery door, the crying getting louder and louder as she approached. The walls themselves resounded with the crying, and a damp red trickle streamed to the floor, like the pus from Junior's sores. Severely disturbed, Anna grabbed the doorknob and turned it slowly. She pushed the door open, and it stopped. She walked around the nursery, looking at his toys and clothes and crib. He was gone. The walls were still. She stepped back into the hallway and shut the door behind herself. The baby's wails started right back up. She closed her eyes and took a deep breath in. She opened the door, and it stopped. She stood in the doorframe thinking, 
Peekaboo. Peekaboo. Thomas Whaley Jr. died in 1858, and his mother reported hearing his cries come from the nursery where he died over the next several years. Some of his siblings also reported hearing the cries of a young boy echoing through the house, and visitors to the Whaley house have heard his pain as well. We'll return to the tragedies of the Whaley house after this. Now. Back to the story. After Thomas Jr.'s death in 1858, Anna and Thomas had their first daughter, Anna Amelia Whaley. For Amelia's sake, Anna implored Thomas to move the family somewhere else, somewhere safer. Thomas refused again. His general store in town had been doing good business, and it was hard to justify moving. Until the general store burnt down. The police suspected arson, but the culprit was never found. Anna consoled her husband, but then pointed out they now had no reason to stay. The house lurked as it was put on the market, and it watched its builders leave as the Whaley's moved to San Francisco. Realtors showed the house to prospective buyers. During tours, doors would slam shut, windows would fly open, the house would creak and groan, scaring potential owners away. The Whaley House ensured that it would remain unoccupied. It was, after all, loyal to its namesake. Strangers walking by at night would look in the windows and see a ghastly tall man hanging from the ceiling, or a red-faced toddler pressed against the glass. Most sped up their pace, there were some who looked at the house and felt a rumbling in the ground. The house gave off a menacing aura. It longed for the family of its origins, and it called the Whaley's back. In 1868, the Whaley's new home in San Francisco was crushed by a major earthquake. It was the strongest earthquake the Bay had seen in decades seemingly powered by a deep malevolence that most could not explain. But during the disaster, the Whaley's felt something deeper in the earth. They felt the call of their true home. In 1868, the Whaley's returned to San Diego and their menacing brick building with three more children in tow, George, Corinne, and Violet. Upon their return, Thomas and Anna renovated the building, adding an expansion for a general store that they could operate out of their own home. The family learned to live in the home, its various spooks and specters becoming a part of their everyday life. But the house wanted more, and it was willing to bide its time. By 1881, the house had stood for 25 years, and Violet Whaley had grown old in her home. Well, she was only 19, but she felt old. All the women her age were getting married, and she had yet to meet a suitor as she approved of. They were either too short or too tall or too aggressive or too passive, and all of them were scared of her house. If they were scared of the house, they were also scared of her. 
she had grown up in this house, and its past was her past. Nothing could ever change that. Every afternoon, she worked in the general store, hoping for a man to arrive who was undaunted by her presence. This one wouldn't look her in the eyes. This one had a ring on his finger. And this one smelled like a drainage ditch. She moved some items from shelf to shelf, wondering if a man would ever come to take her away to a new and wonderful life. She placed a can of beans on the top shelf, then turned around to see a tall man waiting at the register. Strange, she hadn't heard him come in. She approached the counter, and he looked at her. His eyes were deep and piercing. He seemed like someone who could know her before she spoke a word. He introduced himself as George T. Bertolacci. She was smitten. The two began to talk. Then they took to courting. And the whole time, he was undaunted by the history of her home. He found the spirits fascinating and began to speak to them as if they could talk back. Violet found his willingness endearing, and they quickly got engaged. After only a few weeks, the two were wed. Violet's parents lavished the couple with gifts and paid for them to honeymoon in San Francisco. Looking up at George as they explored the city their first day, Violet caught herself asking, how did I get so lucky? The morning after their arrival, Violet stretched in the bed, reaching out to embrace her husband, but found only a pillow instead. The bed was empty, and so was the hotel room. Her husband, their honeymoon savings, their train tickets, and all of her jewelry were missing. Violet returned to the family home in San Diego in shambles. She felt like a failure, returning to her old home and her old life. For weeks, she stayed in her room, speaking to no one. As she tearfully unpacked her suitcase, she threw her clothes all about the room. Words echoed into her mind from an unknown place. Mad from life's history, they said. Violet grew more angry at Bertolacci. Just thinking about his name made Violet want to hurt somebody. She wanted to rip off her wedding ring and throw it into the harbor. Except, when she looked down, she saw her ring was already gone. Wanting a new chance at love with her husband missing, Violet filed for divorce. Her divorce was scandalous, despite the circumstances surrounding it. Violet was humiliated and her reputation ruined. She retreated further into the isolation of her childhood bedroom. One night, Violet found herself unable to sleep. As she shook from her tears, the walls shook with her. Then, the walls stopped. They pushed in, urging her to move. She stood up and followed their pulse into the hallway, hearing a calm whisper emanate from the walls. Swift to death's mystery. She passed by her father's study, lit by the pale moonlight that spilled from the window, and paused. 
a strong pull urged her into the room. She passed a hand along the smooth wood of her father's desk, littered with papers, pens, and a plain wooden box that she had never seen before. She picked it up to examine it and noticed it was locked. Violet searched her father's desk for the key, desperate to see what the box contained. Unable to find the key, she peered into the lock. Smoke trickled from the opening and began to wrap itself around her hand. Moaning whispers seemed to stream along with the smoke, saying, Glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world. She dropped the box and let it clatter upon the ground. She bolted from the room, terrified of what she'd just witnessed. But her mind soon returned to thoughts of the box. She whispered the box's words back to the walls. Anywhere. Anywhere. For the rest of the night, and for weeks after, the box consumed Violet's every thought. Every time she passed her father's study, those visions of brutal vengeance re-entered the forefront of her consciousness. The visions echoed in her mind, louder than the one in her head that said she was a failure, and louder than the whispers that had ostracized her from society. When she closed her eyes, the box was all she saw, and that lock was the only thing standing in her way. Violet knew her father had a ring of keys that unlocked everything, from the stables to the general store. Surely it contained the answers she so desperately sought. One evening, she snuck into his room to find it. She tiptoed around the bed, her eyes landing on a large coat in the corner of the room. She felt pulled to the coat and searched the pockets and found the keys. She made her way back to the box, her mind racing through the possibilities, chanting to herself, anywhere, anywhere. Something in her heart told her that the box held the secrets she needed to close her wounds and heal her heart. She opened the box, and the visions came rushing back, clearer than ever before. The world would shake as she did, and retribution would be hers. The box held all the answers. She needed to be alone, so she took the box outside. Nobody would bother her in the outhouse. She sat on the wooden seat, chanting with the box, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world. Her father asked if she would be out soon. He needed to use the outhouse. No! She yelled through the outhouse door. Thomas busted down the outhouse door to find Violet slumped over on the seat. Blood pouring from a hole through her heart. Thomas reached down to pick up the revolver and a note left by Violet, containing lines from the Thomas Hood poem, Bridge of Sighs. Mad from life's history, swift to death's mystery, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere, out of this world.
1885, Violet Whaley shot herself through the heart with her father's gun after being swindled by her no-good husband. Her father found her dying in the outhouse. But many people have found her spirit wandering the main house to this day. The Whaley family found the Whaley house inescapable, even after death. Thomas, Anna, and most of their children continued to haunt the place. They're joined by passers-by and executed criminals like Yankee Jim. If you visit the Whaley house today, you'll likely encounter at least one of its ghostly residents. Even the family dog, Dolly, might lick your hands or play with your children. The Whaley House has been declared the most haunted house in the nation, and it's no surprise to those who have visited. The bricks, the general store, and all the remaining Whaley artifacts allow the Whaley House to appear much as it did in the 1800s. The former specters of the Whaley House await those who are brave enough to enter through the front door. Just be careful. Once you enter, you may be unable to leave. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. A new episode comes out every Thursday. Listen to all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy Haunted Places, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Kaylee Huffman. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>